electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. My mission is simple to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Earlier today, the S&P 500 almost reached 4,300, which is 20% off the bottom from last year. Although the averages only pulled back, Dow advancing 92 points, S&P declining 0.38%, NASDAQ plunging 1.29%. The last average being marred by that vicious rotation that I predicted and flagged for you last Friday. I think today's advance from the abyss last year all the way to near 4,300 is actually a very important landmark that you and I must explore. We had a major bottom last October. We've had a huge move up since then, just a gigantic reversal. We have to discuss how it happened, how we got to 4,300 last time, how we got there almost there this time, and figure out if we can spot what's went wrong and what could go right. We need to know which stocks can make us the most money when we get a true trend line inflection. Of course, not all stocks are following this cycle. I mean, look at GameStop, by the way. You know, that one fell 17% after hours just tonight. Well, the news of the uh, CEO being ousted to be replaced by meme king Ryan Cohen. But Lord Porter points a few years ago in a go-go market that left many other stocks behind. Uh, and by the way, if you want to learn more about Cohen, you won't want to miss CNBC's deep dive doc on the meme king himself tonight at 8, 8, 8 p.m. I know I won't. Now, I, I, I know we've worked our way all the way, let's say almost all the way back to where we were last year. But you know what's really instructive? It's been an incredible 10 months since the last time we were at 4,300. For example, you had to hang on during a vicious September and then the beginning of an awful October to get all the way up here. We've got to explore that. Look at what happened in the darkest before the dawn moment that came uh, two months after we were at 4,300 in the S&P. In other words, we went down there and then we came all the way back. Coming into the bottom, which happened to be on October 13th, oh, we were in a terror-filled market, one that was universally being panned and scorned. As usual, the bottom was kind of murky, kind of like the air outside, right? You need contemporaneous data to see what was occurring at that moment. So what I did is this. I went back to the morning memo. I read a morning memo uh, every day for CMB Investing Club. I went to the memo of, of the day that market bottom. My memo, which I start writing at 5.30 a.m. each day for club members, is called What I Am Looking At. And I led that day with a quote which said, U.S. stock futures in a volatile morning turned sharply lower as bond yields reversed and soared on a hotter-than-expected September consumer inflation meeting, end quote. The memo continued, quote, it followed Wednesday's report showing a bigger-than-expected gain in producer prices last month. 
Taken together, the data shows the Federal Reserve has more work to do to control inflation, end quote. And that was all true. And that day, the market did plummet at the open. But then the market turned and it ripped. You know, it only finished up 2.6% for the day. Now, if you're going to make a killing on that day, you had to buy the horrendous open. The bottom was it. It never really got worse than that. So first takeaway, I say, is never, ever ignore a reversal of that magnitude that can signal a total change of direction. Of course, there were some pretty scary stuff leading up to that bottom, the lows on October 13th. On October 11th, our government announced an export ban on semiconductor capital equipment to China. That was the harshest action we'd taken, making things very tough. The investment houses were almost all worthless in their predictions. I don't want to pick on Goldman Sachs. I work there. I love the firm. But uh, right at that moment, the firm said that they had been expecting that inflation was going to cool. They thought the Fed could pivot to be a little less harsh. But they took that prediction off the table right then, assuming the Fed would have had to do a lot more damage to stop inflation. They did, but the bullish call was the right one. Now, fittingly, at that same moment, Brent futures were crushed. Oil fell 1.5 percent, but it was still in the 90s. Bank of England intervened the bond market to restore order, save pensions, which were hours from disaster. According to reports from the week before, it was all very confusing and nasty. Remember, you had to go through this. We're talking about going through this period. It didn't help, by the way, on October 12th, the president in a rare interview said that we could have recession, but it'll be a mild one if we do. Larry Summers. Uh, who really comes out as a professional doomsayer throughout any era, was talking about how strong wage pressure meant that the Fed would have to whack the entire economy. By the way, right at the bottom, do you know that PepsiCo reported and put through 17% price increase? And we thought, oh boy, here we go. But at the beginning of another huge round of ridiculous food inflation, well, it didn't happen. So it's easy to understand why so many people who were, who were at this 4,300 level and then went down all the way here blew out of everything at the bottom because everything was miserable and the future looked even worse. However, if you had actually stayed open-minded, if you were open to the idea that maybe things couldn't get any worse and everyone was too negative at the bottom, as is often the case, then you, want, you, you know what? You could have actually made a fortune. So let's do this. Because we nearly made it back to the milestone at 4,300 level this week, but I thought, I thought it would be instructive to look at the 10 best-performing S&P 500 stocks since the last time the benchmark index was at 4,300 in August of last year. Just kind of take up a little perspective of, of if you had held on, what would have happened. The 10th best performer from this period is a company called Arch Capital Group. Now, if you bought this property housing insurer last fall, I, I, I'm calling you a visionary. When I examined it today and I looked at about half a dozen pieces of research on it, all I can say is it's sure as heck to find what would win if you believed inflation might run its course. Arch Capital is a strong balance sheet. It's a powerful player in insurance. My takeaway, if you think inflation is peaking when nobody else does, consider buying a property and casualty insurer. Ninth best performer, well, you know this one. It's Meta Platforms. Chapel Trust still owns it. Not long after Meta had a terrible quarter in October, Mark Zuckerberg apparently pivoted and decided enough is enough. It's time to get efficient. And he did eventually firing roughly a quarter of his workforce. While Instagram got a new lease in life, reels took off, and the whole enterprise figured out how to get around those Apple privacy restrictions. Then there's the eighth best, Wynn Resorts. Ooh, man, what a gutsy call, right? It would have, to buy a casino chain uh, that gets the bulk of its business from Macau just when tensions with China were on the rise, new wave of COVID was about to begin. Don't know if anybody could have caught this one. Same goes, by the way, for the sixth best, Las Vegas Sands, which is a similar story, except LVS doesn't even have any properties left in the U.S. I always call it Macau Sands. Meaning it was even harder to see coming. Good companies, but 
you know, they can have good stocks. Maybe that's the takeaway. Sandwiched between the two casinos, Fair Isaac. That's a credit score platform. You might know him as FICO. This one makes it makes so much sense. It's scary. In the fall, uh, many people thought that interest rates were going to go higher and higher and housing would be doomed. But if you believe that housing might be just fine, then it made a ton of sense to buy the fintech name that dominates the consumer credit rating industry. But if you wanted to take a more risk, then I would have suggested the fifth best performer, which is Pulte Home. And that's an inexpensive home builder then and now. As is often the case, you have to be counterintuitive to make the most money. Amazingly, you, you can still do this one. Do you know that all of the major and the five home builders hit uh, highs today? Can you believe that? Now, how about this number four? First solar. This was more obvious because the Inflation Reduction Act had just passed the last time we were at 4,300 and included huge solar subsidies. That was gettable. You went easy? How about back in the fall, Netflix announced a new ad-supported tier to draw in more users. Many question whether this would be good for the business. But we've since learned that an ad-supported customer is actually worth a lot more than a regular subscriber. We just heard that from the trade desk earlier this week on the show. Now it's the third best performer since the last time we are at these levels. Sure, maybe you needed a leap of faith to believe in Netflix's management. I know I didn't. Again, though, most people had no idea whether this plan could even work. Next, NVIDIA. All right, second best performer from that period. Uh, maybe the only way to spot this one, frankly, was to know that I named my late dog NVIDIA. Or in reality, I've never stopped talking about this stock, even if you listen to me or join me in the investment club, where we own it as part of the Chapel Trust. David Faber makes fun of me pretty much by 914 every morning because I mentioned NVIDIA. You know why? Because it's the greatest performing stock I've come across since I started the show. Finally, there's the number one winner since we were at last at 4,300, and that's Royal Caribbean. My biggest theme since the end of the pandemic is that people are now long on money and short on time. You know, I actually stole that phrase from a fellow I met when I was fishing off Panama. I never acknowledged it. Uh, his, that it was not my authorship. I, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's so good you got to steal something. Royal Caribbean is all about this thesis. Plus, it's the best capitalized cruise line that it's already started showing signs of a real turn. Difficult to catch? Yeah. Impossible? No. So here's the bottom line. When it looks real bad, remember that the light at the end end of the tunnel isn't always an oncoming trade. And there are plenty of stocks that can do really well if you're just patient, despite the turbulence that lay ahead. It took us 10 months to get us back to 4,300, a time that included some of the darkest moments in recent memory. If you hung on to these stocks I just mentioned, you made out better than anyone thought possible at the time. Let's go to Robert in Washington. Robert. Hey, Jim. I have a significant position in Northrop Grumman. wanted to know what you think about that stock and defense stocks generally, particularly in light of the military activities. Okay, this is a really important point. You know, last time we had, uh, in 2011, we had one of these problems with the debt ceiling. The defense stocks all went down in anticipation of big cuts. We got some sequestration, we got some cuts, but then they started roaring back. You've got this stock here at 453. It's well down from its high of 556. Down 100 points on a quality company like Northrop Grumman. I'm telling you, I think I would buy it. Let's go to Dennis in California. Dennis. Oh, yeah, Jim. Yeah, Dennis, what's going on? First time caller. Uh, I wonder what you think about Car- Carvana. I've had that stock for a little while. But I, okay, Carvana, I saw you, I watched a great report today from Phil LeBeau. Used car prices coming down. I think that's the signal that you've seen the high in Carvana. Sell, 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 I don't sell, like sell. that balance sheet. Look, I can be, it can go higher, but you know what? I'm a balance sheet oriented person. That company's losing a lot of money. I'm not going to recommend money losers on mad money. It costs you too much. Jerry in Missouri, Jerry. 
Hey, Jim, just want to point out that your staff is remarkable. They're unbelievable. They save me every day of the week, believe me. And then sometimes twice, like today. What's going on? All right, this regional bank stock is down 68% from its highs er earlier this year, and now it has an accidental high yield of about 8%. Do you think the yield is safe, and do you like Key Corp for a 6 to 12-month trade? Okay, I'm not recommending any regional banks other than First Horizon as of yesterday. I think Chris Gorman does a very good job, but when I go out and say a dividend's safe, I better darn be sure that it's be safe. And I cannot do that. And you know why? Because I have not spoken to that company. I have not had Mr. Gorman on. Uh, and this business is just too hard, and I've been through too much to be able to say, hey, you know what? Sure, it's safe without having done enough work. All right, it took us 10 months to get back to 4,300. A time that included the darkest, some of the darkest moments in recent memory. If you hung on to the stocks that were there doing well and have gone up since then, well, you made up better than anyone thought possible from SPX 4300 the last time. Well, made money tonight. Campbell's soup reported this morning, and the headline numbers look good. Uh, but Wall Street was looking for more. So after today's 9% decline, are investors getting a buying opportunity in the snacking kingpin? Let's check with the CEO. Then tech has become a big winner of late, but I spotted one legacy tech name that I think is wrongfully ignored by the street. I will reveal it. I'm going to order for the trust. And Wall Street took a bite out of Brinker today, falling 6%, even though the stock was up most of the day. So should investors, what do they do? What do you do with Chili's? What do you do with Maggiatos? I got an idea. Let's talk to the CEO. And stay with... Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. What do we do with the packaged food stocks now that Wall Street seems a lot less enamored of the group because of a possible recession? Time to give up on the whole group? I don't know. Comes to individual performance, that's what I think. That brings me to Campbell Soup. And you know Campbell Soup, but you also know Pepperidge Farm, Snyder's of Hanover, Lance, Pacific, one of my favorites, Prego, many other brands. This stock had an excellent run last year. It's long been a favorite, but it's been range back. 
stuck in the low 50s practically all year. And then this morning, we found out why it's been stuck. Campbell Soup reported inline sales with modest recent earnings beat. So far, so good. But the stock got clobbered today because management didn't officially raise its forecast, only saying they expect their full year earnings to come in at the high end of the previous guidance. They also saw disappointing volumes in some areas, particularly in meals. And that's why the stock tumbled nearly 9% today. Overreaction? What do we do? I say we check in with Mark Klaus. He's the president and CEO of Campbell Soup Company. Get a better read of the quarter. And what's more important, what's coming next? Mr. Klaus, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. All right, so, Mark, it's very easy to say, you know what? I don't like the uh, meal business anymore. I like the snack business. But sometimes it's the opposite. So what I need is some straight, straight dope from you about why we should be not worried about the meal business and why we think the snacks should continue to be fantastic. Yeah, great question, Jim. Look, we we feel very good about both of our businesses. And if you look over the last uh, several years through pandemics, inflation, you name it, these businesses have been incredibly resilient and performed very well. Um, As we came into this quarter, and I think always important to start with, this was the quarter we expected. This was the, the guidance that we put in place. And when we look at meals and beverage, we knew we were going to be cycling a significant recovery in our supply chain. In fact, I would argue that our supply chain right now is best in class in the industry. Our service levels are back to pre-pandemic levels, but we did lap that rebuild of inventory that is supply chain recovered a year ago um, is putting a little bit of pressure on our meals and beverage business. In fact, about seven points. So in a quarter where we were reporting relatively stable meals and beverage down slightly, you put that seven points in place and it's actually a very solid performance. I look down deeper into the portfolio and I look at the parts of the business that really matter for the future, especially on businesses like soup where we're seeing condensed, especially our icons, so chicken noodle, tomato, the foundation of our business performing well, condensed, which is all about in-home cooking, doing terrific. Our chunky business continues to be a strong performer and has been one of the real stars of this portfolio as it's pivoted from being a low price value product to one that's now marketed and positioned to protein, quick lunches, really doing well for the future. You mentioned Pacific, you know, one of my personal favorites, it was the fastest growing ready to serve soup in the quarter as it related to share. Prego, Pace, good complementary businesses up 6%, 10% respectively. This is really a quarter where we just had to cycle through the comparable. I continue to believe very strongly in the role meals and beverages are going to play. Snacks, a home run quarter. Right. right? If anything, yeah, if anything, Jim, I think this solidifies the thesis that we've been telling on snacks, which is really about us taking a Snyder's Lance portfolio integrating our marketing and innovation capability, really bringing the scale of the combined business together. And you saw that, right, in 15% uh, in-market growth, 12% top-line growth, and we're now putting points on the board for margin up over 14, 150 basis points up against a year ago. And that was always the belief. We can drive the growth, build these brands, and grow profit at the same time. So as I look at the quarter, I think it's a good reinforcement of both of those. Areas. But is there, you know, let's mention Pacific for a second. That's the highest, that's yeah. the best I cook with it. One of the things that I like about it is, you know, it's obviously fresh, it's terrific. Is there any possibility that people who got used to working from home and they were having the canned soup have decided, you know what, 
at the end of the day now, I want to go out. I want to see people. I'm not going to have the canned soup for dinner. Or if I cook, I'm going to cook well. I'm worried about that because I don't want to see something that's, that's changed to make it so the thesis is not as strong. We're, Jim, we're really not seeing that dynamic at all. Okay. In fact, the Pacific business in particular, um, the growth has come from our canned soup ready to serve business. And on in particular within condensed, which has always been a little bit, I think, of a question for all of us. Can we build relevance with younger consumers right. with a condensed soup business? We're seeing that cooking dynamic where we grew share again. If you go back over the last four years, so are we better off than we were pre-pandemic? We've seen multiple share points of gain, and that's even stronger when you look at that very important millennial consumer. So I, I actually see no indication that cooking as a behavior in home is slowing down. And I continue to think that our portfolio with that combination of condensed soup, prego, pace, uh, Swanson Broth Pacific really positions us well going forward. And I think over time, you know, that's what we're going to keep demonstrating. OK, I want to be sure um, in your excellent as always, because you're a very transparent uh, deck on a, a page in building momentum. Page 19, you do have a, a 1080 basis points inflation uh, uh, bogey that I don't know. Can that change? That is a That's a bummer for me when I saw that. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I think. We're seeing moderation, but we're not seeing inflation go away. And so I think in the in the world that we're in today, we're going to start to live into this cycle where there are going to be parts of the business where inflation may be going up, other parts where we see declines. The net of it will be less incremental impact. And I think the good news is we're positioned well as we've taken uh, four waves of pricing. I feel good uh, about our ability to protect both the affordability for consumers, which is so important right, right now, while also protecting the profitability of these categories. And that's really been the balancing act we've been focused on as a company uh, really for the, the last couple of years. And I think we continue uh, to execute that very well. Well, look, I, I think you put us in good position for those who have, do not own the stock. You're going to cycle through. In the meantime, snacks is the strongest I've ever seen it. And uh, I think that things can, I agree with you, I think things can balance out. And I'm really glad you came on to tell the straight, as always, the straight story. I want to thank Mark Klaus, President and CEO of Campbell's. Great to see you again, sir, as always. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Okay, man, might be back after break. Coming up, swing a cat and hit a big tech winner. Oracle is one success story you may have missed. Kramer fixes on that next. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Eight four four Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com/businessgoldcard. 
Until today, we've got so many tech winners in this market, it's easy to miss some slower and steadier stories that, let's just say, are a lot less exciting. Take Oracle. That's the $284 billion software titan with a stock that's up 29% for the year. But unlike most of this year's big tech winners, which are still well below their all-time highs, Oracle just set a new high earlier today. Last year, when the Nasdaq was down 33%, Oracle only declined by a little more than 6%. When you look longer term, it's been an incredible outperformer, nearly doubling over the last three years, and more than doubling if you include its dividend. So how come it doesn't get much more uh, respect, attention? Because Oracle's often wrongly painted as an old tech giant, something that some people consider Cisco or IBM. Now, it, it's certainly old. But it doesn't behave like the old tech companies that so many do, which is why its stock's doing so much better than IBM or Cisco. It's even outperforming Microsoft over the last three years, and Microsoft's one of the few old tech names that's been able to roar higher in the new era. Everybody loves Microsoft. Maybe the real question is, how on earth can Oracle perform so well? What's behind these tremendous gains that nobody seems to talk about? The first and most important part of the story is that Oracle, long a titan in the enterprise software space, has quietly become one of the top players in cloud infrastructure, not too far behind Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, and Microsoft's Azure. And by the way, Oracle was actually singled out by NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong when he gave his big commencement address last week in Taipei. Those three companies moved first and established a large presence in the cloud. So for a long time, Oracle seemed like it was just left behind, maybe never could catch up. A lot of people figured Oracle had such an entrenched business and old-fashioned on-premises software that they'd be self-cannibalizing if they fully embraced the cloud. In reality, though, Oracle was merely biding its time, formulating a strategy, rolling out a terrific cloud infrastructure platform. A lot of people didn't believe them. They were wrong. The real turning point here came a few years ago when Oracle rolled out its second-generation cloud infrastructure platform, one that was finally competitive with Amazon or Google or Microsoft. In fact, if you believe management, Oracle's solution is faster, cheaper, and more secure than the competition. That's tough for me to believe. But you know what? They make a good, good story. Their pitch is is that they all can uh, serve all of the customers' needs both in cloud infrastructure and cloud applications. It's a one-stop shop. That makes sense. At its most recent investor day, last October, Oracle estimated its total addressable market, or TAM, in the cloud to be worth $750 billion, spread across both cloud software and cloud infrastructure. That's very impressive. You can see the company's success here as early as 2021. But then the Federal Reserve declared war on inflation. All things tech were exiled to the doghouse. Didn't help when Oracle announced its $28 billion acquisition of Cerner, which closed around this time last year. Initially, Wall Street hated that transaction. Okay, not me. I loved it, but Wall Street didn't like it. It interrupted the cloud narrative. It was expensive, and Cerner's software was of the old-fashioned on-premises variety. But in reality, Cerner had plans to embrace the cloud. They were going to use the Amazon Web Services at first before going with the Oracle Cloud after the deal. Over the last year, Wall Street's grown much more appreciative of this transaction, thanks in part to Cerner, Oracle's been able to put up some fabulous cloud numbers for the past three quarters. In the first quarter of their 2023 fiscal year, which ended last summer, the cloud business grew by an astounding 45%. Second quarter was up 43%. Third quarter, the most recent one, was up 45% again. These numbers should come down once Oracle lapsed the Cerner acquisition, which brought in a huge slug of business for the cloud infrastructure division, but it's still looking pretty darn good. Yesterday, analysts at Jefferies published a deep dive on Oracle, arguing that they expect the company's organic revenue growth to actually accelerate from here. That would shock me, but it could be great. Now, here's the best part of the Oracle story. While they've got a great source of growth from the cloud, at the end of the day, this is a very mature company that's insanely profitable and is a cash machine. 
it throws off a huge ton of cash. Even after the stock's basically doubled over the past three years, it still sells for less than 19 times next year's earnings estimates. Very inexpensive. Compare that to Microsoft, which trades at like 29 times next year's earnings estimate. Oracle also uses its tremendous cash flow to pay decent-sized dividend, not big, but, but most importantly, it increased that payout by 25% earlier this year. You know I love dividend boosts because they're true signs of confidence from management. Nobody wants to raise the dividend and then have to be forced to cut it again in the not-too-distant future. That's just embarrassing. All right, so it only supports a 1.5% yield. Remember, the stock's up a lot. It's still a heck of a lot more than what you get from a bunch of the other companies in technology. Uh, to say nothing about the dividend-free mega-capital tech approach of Alpha, Amazon, and Meta. Finally, during the sustained period of time when Oracle struggled to grow, and that's from 2012 through 2020, before their cloud business took off, these guys did one thing very, very right, maybe better than almost any large company I know. They bought back a ton of stock at ridiculously cheap prices in retrospect. Oracle shrank its share count from just over 5 billion shares at the end of 2011 fiscal year to get this. It always astounds me to 2.7 billion shares as of today. Yep, that's right. They retired nearly half the share count, for heaven's sake. At this point, founder chairman CTO Larry Ellison, often considered the most competitive person on earth, by the way, now owns 42% of the company. I consider that an advantage because it means that 42% of Oracle shares don't really trade. Oh, and by the way, this is CEO, Safra Katz. She's one of the most amazing business people I have ever had the pleasure to meet, a true rock star. In the end, those who caught on to the Oracle story with its increasingly competitive offers in the cloud have now caught a huge gain. We'll see what happens when the company reports next week. Given its recent momentum, I wouldn't be surprised to see another set of strong numbers. But I also know many of the cloud vendors have started to feel the pain of a slower economy. Oracle might be unable to avoid that, especially during this nasty anti-tech rotation that just began. But here's the bottom line. Even if Oracle reports a not-so-strong number, even if it gets hit a bit, I would be inclined to look at that weakness of potential buying opportunity. I know I'm certainly thinking about that for the investing club because this stock hasn't just given you uh, great returns. It's given you very few meaningful pullbacks over the past eight months. Either way, though, if you're still thinking about Oracle as an old tech giant, you're wrong. You better reevaluate your perspective quickly because that's a lot, a lot of stuff's going on at this company. It's very exciting that you may not know about. This is not old tech. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob. Mr. Kramer, thank you so much for taking my call. It's a pleasure and an honor. Ah, uh, Bob, thanks for calling. What's up? Yes, sir. Hey, I had a question about this stock, and I know you've been preaching, don't buy this tech, you know, kind of run up, uh, but this company had sure. such great earnings, um, and their numbers were great. Um, what do you think about CRM here? CRM, okay, Salesforce, they just announced a Really, a major restructuring, a lot of different, well, you call it reshuffling. But you're absolutely right, Bob. I have said that um, as of last Friday, I don't want to buy the techs. They've run too much. I think Salesforce can uh, go further down. And when it does that, we can look at it. You're absolutely right, though. The quarter was good, although the revenue was a little slower than I would have liked. Uh, the uh, sector is wrong right now. The sector will be right not that long from now. But I do not want to just dive in at this very moment. I do have a big position on it for my travel trust. Let's go to Bo in Alabama. Bo. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Glad to see you got your voice back. We missed it. Ah, uh, thank you. Sure trying to keep it there. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. My uh, question, as a uh, manager of retail outlets over here in Alabama, I've started to see an abundance amount of cash app cards and cash app transactions relating to Square. 
Why is it so undervalued? Okay, it's undervalued because the competition is so strong. There are many people who want in that business. Square is a very good company, as you pointed out. But there's so many people gunning for them that it's very difficult for that company to, for the company's stock to make headway. So that's what you're dealing with, and I thank you for the call. Now, if you're still thinking about Oracle as an old tech giant, I think you've got to reevaluate that perspective. I'd be inclined to look at any weakness in this stock as a potential buying opportunity. Much more made money yet. Just like some of these tech names, the restaurant stocks have been a bright spot this earnings season, but down over 6% today after an investor day. Were the expectations too high for Brinkford or something wrong? I'm going to check in with the CEO of the company, whose symbol is EAT. Then, we've been hyper-focused on the home builders, but it looks like the strength in the sector has finally begun to make its way to the home improvement stocks, which have been such dogs. I'm giving you a list of names that I'm watching beyond the classic home builder place. They are perfect for this rotation that's going on right now. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This is a conundrum for me. What the heck just happened to Brinker International? That's a pair of Chili's and Maggiano's Little Italy. Now, here's a stock that's been under the radar screen winner, big winner in the restaurant space. But today, Brinker hosted an Investor Day event, and well, investors were clearly a bit perturbed. At its highs this morning, the stock was up more than 5%. I was loving the presentation. But then it rapidly plunged, ultimately closing down more than 6%. The culprit? I think it was that Brinker put out a new set of three-year financial targets. Those numbers seemed to appreciably slower than what some people thought. So could this be a buying opportunity? Maybe the projections that hurt the stock were just a little too cautious. Or maybe we should be more circumspect, which has been a terrific long-term story here. So let's take a close look with Kevin Hockman, the president and CEO of Brink International, to find out a little bit more. Mr. Hockman, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thank you, Jim. How are you? Kevin, I am good. And I've got to tell you, I was confused. I thought the presentation was terrific. I know there was a chart put up about some longer term goals. I know you spoke very honestly and eloquently about inflation and about some of the problems that you're having. But overall, I thought you told a story that would indicate that things could accelerate if things go well, not decelerate. Am I too much of an optimist? Absolutely not, Jim. So um, the presentation went exceptionally well. I think the uh, research analysts that were there in person and the investors saw the long-term opportunity for our business. We're working on the right things to accelerate growth and do it profitably. Um, The feedback I got personally was, you guys are on the right track. This is awesome. Now, I do think when we look at what happened with the stock today, you know, there's a lot of different variables that happened. So we did talk about um, the slowing traffic trends, which is uh, consistent with the industry. Now, I will say we also shared that we continue to grow market share, which tells us the performance and the things that we're working on are the right things and a relative performance is better. We also shared about some of the investments that we're making in 24 in labor and advertising and repairs and maintenance, as well as some incremental interest expense because of the debt that we have and rising interest rates. So, you know, I, I'm not terribly surprised about some of the reactions. Um, but I am very encouraged about what we heard on the strategy and the long-term you know, projections for our business. Oh, good. I mean, you know, here's how I came out. You had a quarter May 3rd. I love the quarter. Everything was terrific. 
And then you kind of fleshed things out a little bit more. And you, but you did talk about, you used the term investment year, which I always worry about. Uh, you did talk about the possibility that uh, the consumer is getting a little more skittish. But then I think you gave us some advertising campaigns that I think are brilliant, that people are thinking about around the country. I think you rolled out a margarita strategy that is going to be incredibly lucrative. Then you stick by your, your uh, four pillars, which everybody loves. You came out with an, with an off-premise strategy that I think can work. To me, all these made me feel like that, you know what, investment year may not mean bad year. It may just mean that we're not going to accelerate as much. Yeah, you know, it could have just been, you know, expectations are getting ahead of where we are, in, you know, in, in our strategy. I will tell you, I remain to be incredibly bullish about the innovation that's coming on our core four, the advertising campaigns that are coming to drive traffic and top of mind awareness on Chili's. Um, and I remain extremely bullish about what's happening in the operation. The simplification's working. The team's are more excited than ever. I, I'll tell you a story. One of the analysts took me aside and said, hey, I was in a restaurant in Westbury, New York, um, and I brought some investors with me, and we asked the manager about how things were going, and they said, you know what? I was going to retire at the end of this year, and I'm staying another three years because I'm so encouraged about the changes I've seen. Kevin was in my restaurant with his team. They took a bunch of notes, and then we saw changes happen. So we're hearing those stories all around the country, and so I would tell you I think we're on the right track. There's always going to be a little bit of turbulence when you're making big changes in the strategy to a short-term stock price. Quite frankly, I'm still extremely excited about where we're going. Right, but let me tell you what I thought might be the toughest and what I think the real challenges are and one that may not be. I think your off-premise strategy, because of the fact that your food is served best in the restaurant, is always going to be a problem. And I think that the mistakes, unless you have artificial intelligence, are going to continue to harm things. How can you make it so that off-premise can ever be as good as the experience, including the margies that you get at the restaurant? Yeah, well, let me focus on the uh, the three main reasons why, you know, not just Chili's, but the industry has challenges with off-premise. You know, number one is accuracy. And say, so why is accuracy so much of a challenge in off-premise versus dining? Because when you make a mistake in dining, let's say you leave off a sauce, you just tell the server and we bring the sauce right out. But you can't make those changes once you're at home, right? So we can get accuracy to, to be better. That's going to improve the experience of off-premise. The way we're going to do that is with a new kitchen display system, a very modern one that's going to help tell exactly what is needed for each uh, order, as well as have new things like touch screens where you can actually just blow out exactly what needs to go in the order. So that is going to help with accuracy. The second thing I would tell you um, is promise times. So you know, if we're going to promise 30 right. minutes or 40 minutes very or whatever hard. it is, we can use artificial intelligence, and we're going to put that in in the next three months to actually tell us you know, exactly when's the right time to pace and sequence that order. And then the last thing is packaging. And our friends in QSR um, and in uh, Fast Casual, they know their packaging has to travel home. And so we're going to work with the suppliers of packaging of these other concepts that sell a lot of off-premise to create more sustainable, cheaper, and packaging that holds better. And I think if we do those three things, the experience of off-premise will get better, and that'll become a stickier right. channel. And for then us. you go back on what's working. I mean, look, Jenna Fisher, Angela Kinsey's great, uh, McKnight's great. But what I thought was incredible is when you advertise on sports, linear TV, you get a big lift. So, I mean, those are things you obviously know where to put the money at to get the big lift. Those are all things that can happen in 2024. I mean, right? We're not worried about those. Oh, we're super excited about that. We built a world-class um, advertising group led by George Felix, our new chief marketing officer. He's brought on Wyden and Kennedy, a world-class advertising agency. And we're going to be doing three to four pops of what we saw during March Madness 
that really changed our traffic trend versus the industry. So I could be more confident about the advertising and our ability to drive traffic next year. And last thing, uh, Margaritas, you're putting in, you know, look, you're putting in Casamigos. You've got some higher price ones coming. Can your customers sustain a high price, Margie? Well, one of the most important things that we're doing with our core four strategy, so that's margaritas, fajitas, crispers, um, and, and burgers, is making sure that we have entry-level price points. So if you have that amount of money, you can get into one of those four. And then we can, then if you want more premium benefits, you can go all the way up to super premium things. So for example, in margaritas, we will always have our margarita of the month. It'll be six or $7. This month, you can get a Tito's vodka, uh, with tequila, watermelon spritz for just $6. Good or if you want a $9 Presidente or if you want a $13 Casamigos, you can do that too. So you're always going to be able to get amazing value, unbeatable value at Chili's. But if you want to trade up for something a little bit more, we're going to have that available well, too. Well, I like what I hear. People are getting in at a price that, look, up five today, maybe not so good. But down here, I really like the situation. That's Kevin Hawkins, president and CEO of Brinker, symbol E. Hey, Kevin, great to see you again. Hey, thank you, Jim. It's always great to be Absolutely. on. I appreciate it. Everybody's back into the break. Coming up, what's in your mind, America? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Chris, I'm going to start with Kevin in Illinois. Kevin. Hey, Jim. I bought this stock a couple of weeks ago, and I'm up a couple of dollars this year, but I'm inclined to double or even triple my position because it's still down like 20% and has room to run. Rio Tinto. I happen to like Rio Tinto very much. I like the mineral stocks if they're really well run, as Rio Tinto is. And I think the yield right now is still safe. So you're okay. Let's go to David in North Carolina. David. Hey, Jim. Hope you're having a good day. And a hometown Baltimore boom. I like that. What do you think of the only pure play amusement and water park company that pays a quarterly distribution? Cedar Fair. Parent of my neighborhood, Carolyn. I think it's fine. It, it, you know, you see a lot more. I'm not enamored of it. I don't like businesses that are related with the weather. Witness the fact that we got some crazy thing going on outside. I've never seen it before. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve. Hey, Jim. This is Steve in Pennsylvania. Cough, yes. Cough. Uh, club member. Very satisfied. Keep up Thank the good you. work. Thank you, man. We yeah. got a big club meeting this week. That's really nice. I'll tell Jeff Morris, too. Go ahead. Great. Jim, I know you're suspicious of high yields, but I also know that you like Blackstone. What do you think of Blackstone Mortgage, BXMT? Okay, here they have mortgages that I do not know about. I don't know what's in them, so I'm going to have to defer and say I don't want to recommend that. I wish I could tell you, listen, I've seen the mortgages, but I haven't. Let's go to Eli in Pennsylvania. Eli. Thank you for taking my call, Jim. You're quite welcome. A big shout-out for my son, Mason. Absolutely. How can I help? Jim, I'm calling about Marvell Technology. I bought... Okay, Marvell, we got to be very careful. A lot of rumors today. All they're doing, they're doing very well with NVIDIA. I like the stock. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. 
Coming up, there's money to be made in the home building boom. But the real value is coming from inside the house. The housing bull market's finally broadening out, and that means there's more money to be made. The strength in this business is trickling down to quality companies with stocks that have been lagging behind the red-hot home builders of late. We all know about the incredible runs in Lenoir, Pulte, which we mentioned at the top of the show, D.R. Horton, KP Homes, Toll Brothers, historic move in a group that typically gets clobbered when the Fed raises interest rates. Didn't happen this time, in part because even as the mortgage rates have gone higher, the demand for homes is just too strong to be stopped by that. We got a huge housing shortage. There are several powerful themes driving houses, like the fact that we can't build as many as we used to, we've got accelerated household formation post-pandemic. It's been a disaster for anyone who bets against these stocks, and a lot of people bet against them because they're supposed to go down at this point in the business cycle. The home builders escaped from the historical playbook and rally, but you know what hasn't followed them, at least until today? Anything related to home improvement or renovation. It's almost as though the market decided that people are going to move out of their homes anyway, so why bother to renovate? But that's no longer the case. And these stocks are finally getting the credit they're due. But this is really just day one of what I think will be a decent rotation. We're now seeing a recognition that if you leave your current home, you sacrifice your low to no mortgage rate. People don't want to do that. One of the casualties of the lack of financial discipline in the previous year was the ability to get ridiculously cheap mortgages that turned out to be a generational event. No one wants surrendering them. If you can't move, and a lot of people can't, mortgage application once again is slightly negative today, then you know what you do? you fix up your current house. There's been a very uneven recognition of what might need to be improved. For example, in its last quarter, Home Depot talked about big projects that are still being done, ones that need building materials and plumbing. Here's what I see happening, though. For the first time since the tightening cycle began, the stocks of these home improvement plays are starting to take off. I actually noticed the trend when I was at the CNBC CEO Council not that long ago, interviewing Nick Fink, the CEO of Fortune Brands Innovations, uh, which has the best high-end plumbing, ideal for renovation and remodeling, R&R, 65% of their business. I think you can go higher. I also like AZEC. You might have seen them on last night. This is a largely residential company that makes expensive faux wood-based composites that can be used to redo stairs, housing fronts, and decking, and boy, it saves a lot of PVC from landfills. It's expensive on an earnings basis, no doubt about it. But I think this, that's because the earnings could turn out to be much higher in the future than expected because of the shift to remodeling. CEO Jesse Singh's doing a terrific job. Now, there are some new ones that are starting to move, even though they reported weaker quarters thanks to the post-COVID hangovers. Here I'm thinking Williams-Sonoma. They had a largely weak quarter as the big redos of home offices. Now, that's that one section they're really involved in. They're now complete. But you know what? The stock still sells at a ridiculously low nine times earnings. And for the first time, I can recall Williams-Sonoma is a value stock. I've been worried about Whirlpool. I thought it was going to sell its huge European business outright and then take the capital and pay down debt that's been, it, it accumulated when it bought Insincorator from Emerson. Instead, Whirlpool made this kind of convoluted deal with a Turkish company, Arcelic, that actually obscured value. But now it sells for just nine times earnings, almost yields 5%. I'm calling that one tempting. Finally, I really like the idea of buying the stock of Stanley Black & Decker, the fabled toolmaker that's made some forays into industrial equipment, a business I think they can sell to unlock value. We just heard from Stanley Black & Decker that its numbers are in line so far. That's a big change for certain. And if the company can sell any of its industrial divisions, including some strange aerospace business, I bet you could have a real home run call here. Yep, it's time to go beyond the home builders 
into what goes into a home. Those are the best, with the last Stanley Black & Decker being, maybe I would say, having the most upside. They're all pretty attractive, though, now that we've got no choice but to stay in and fix up our homes. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis, but Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.